0: Hi, we are Inspired Churches, and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspiredchurches.com. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber? Anybody ever see that movie Dumb and Dumber? Yeah. So there's a scene in the movie, right? Uh, where, uh, Lloyd, there's these two guys, uh, Harry and Lloyd. Uh, and so, uh, Lloyd is the one with his, yeah, at the bottom, he's Jim Carrey, so. Um, and there is this woman that he is absolutely in love with, just, just struck by, and they're having a conversation, and, uh, he's asking, like, hey, is there any possible way that, you know, we'd be to get, we're gonna be able to get together? What do you think? And she was like, uh, no, not likely, Right. <laughs> Not, it doesn't look good. And he says, well, you know, what are the chances? Like, you know, one in a hundred? And she's like, more like one in a million. And there's this pause in the movie Then all of a sudden he gets a big smile and he says that famous line, so you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) Of course, the odds were stacked against him. And today we're looking at a scene where actually something happens against all odds. So we'll get to that in a minute. We are going through the book of Luke, and we are in a series called The Table because we are looking at and observing all of the table scenes, all the places where Jesus is meeting with people and eating. And let me just say this, there is a lot of places where people eat and meet Jesus. There is a lot of places where Jesus likes to eat. Somebody say amen. Amen. Love it. And And the reason why we're looking at those scenes is because uh, we are hoping that this will call us back to the table of Jesus with a new and refreshed look. That's why we're holding the Lord's Supper every Sunday during this series, but also to inspire us to open up our own tables, that because Jesus opened his, that we will open ours, and to ask the question, what does it look like to be a people of hospitality? What does it look like to be a people that are willing to invite others that maybe don't sound like you, look like you, think like you, vote like you, to come together and to commune with them, to build a relationship with them, to love and serve them well so that they too might meet Jesus at his table, right? right? And so next week is our last installment of this series, and so we're coming like to quote boys the men, right, to the end of the road. <laughs> and, uh, and I hope this series has been excited for you. But if you've missed any of it, please go back. It's on YouTube and uh, podcasts and different things. And, and I would love for you to be able to hear the entire series. So today, our assignment is in Luke 24. Luke 24. And we're going to start in verse 13. It says this. Now that, some, uh, now that same day, and we'll know what that same day means in a minute, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. We'll find out which two in a minute. About seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them. Now, why that's astonishing is because Jesus just died. He was just crucified. He actually just rose from the dead. And so now here he is. This is his resurrected, glorified body, right? So as they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? As if he didn't know, right? They stood still and their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas asked him, are you uh, the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. You know, he's just prying. The things about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, as if that isn't enough, it is the third day since all this took place. Now, the reason that's important is because in that culture, they believe that after three days, the soul left the body. And so, final, death was final, right? Right? Three days since all this took place. In addition, even more, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that, he had, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in scripture concerning himself. Now, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table, somebody say at the table. Table. Oh, that wasn't very good. Say at the table. Right, there we go. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, right? And they recognized him. Then he disappeared from their sight they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us when within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem there they found 11 the 11 and those with them assembled together saying it is true the lord has risen and has appeared to Simon then the two uh, told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread when he broke the bread. So here we are, and we're in Luke chapter 24, and it's interesting uh, because we have these three sort of stories, these three post-resurrection documented appearances, right? These three accounts of what happened after the resurrection. So one, we have the women, right, that were at the tomb. Second, we have the two disciples that are here on the road to Emmaus. And then third, which Phil, Pastor Phil will talk about next week, um, is the last part of 24. We have Jesus appearing to the 11, the apostles in the upper room. Now, one of the most remarkable things about this chapter is actually what's left out. See, because what we know is that Luke not only authored the book of Luke, but he also authored Acts. And what we know in Acts is that Luke was very aware of these post-resurrection appearances. That, that Jesus rose again and that he spent 40 days after his resurrection teaching, eating, all of this uh, stuff uh, with disciples. He appeared to skeptics, to non-believers, right? And so there were probably dozens, scores of dramatic experiences. People, you know, meeting the, the risen Savior, And so what is so remarkable is that Luke goes to preserve these accounts, and if Luke decides, I'm only going to preserve three, then it's right for us to assume that he must believe that in these details and all of their features, that they are to convey to us the meaning of the resurrection better, perhaps, than any of the other appearances, right? So So, in other words, we have the right to say that not only did Luke author these these documented events and he wrote down he chose these three but but that these three have something to teach us yeah, right. and and really, this is the the where we're looking at a meal that happened. After Jesus died and rose again in his glorified body, which, which, which gives us hints to what what life will be like when we're resurrected and when, when, when those who are in Christ, when we are physically resurrected into a physical heaven and, and, and what that looks like. And, and it looks like to me that what Jesus seems to do a lot is eat. Praise the Lord. And so I'm excited because not just on this side of glory, but on that side of glory, it looks like we're going to do a lot of eating. Amen. Somebody right there should have just shouted and run around and jumped and hollered and screamed. Praise God. If that doesn't get you saved, I don't know. Just kidding. Freak. Kidding, not kidding. Okay. <laughs> and so he chose to preserve these three experiences. So what do they teach us? Well, obviously this morning we're focusing on the two Uh, disciples walking to Emmaus. And so there, I just want us to look at the return, the reveal, and the release, and then the message will be done. The return, the reveal, and the release. Number one, the return. Take a look. First of all, the fact that the first part of this passage, it's interesting because it says that they were downcast, right? There's the, the, if you notice here that Jesus comes alongside, they didn't recognize him. In fact, look what it says. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And look what he says. It says, they stood still, their faces downcast. They stood still, their faces downcast. So he says, what are they talking about? They actually stop from walking and their faces were downcast. What this is getting across is the despair that they were in. Wow. The utter despair. Do you know why they were in despair? Well, they were in despair for, for for two reasons, one general and one specific. The general reason is this: they were looking at life without a resurrection. Wow. Is- they were looking at life without a resurrection. That's good. They were looking at Jesus' ministry. They were looking at their lives, his life. They were looking at life. And as far as they could tell, death was the end. Death was the end of Jesus and death would be the end of them. They were looking at life without resurrection. And anybody who looks at life and discusses life and thinks about life and forms a worldview about life without a resurrection, anybody who does that, We'll say, well, life is all there is. This life, th- this is it. There is no eternity. There is nothing else. And if that's true, then ultimately they'll be in despair too. You'll stop in your tracks. You'll be downcast. See? But there is a resurrection. If there is, and if there is a resurrection, which there is, then everything has meaning. Look what N.T. Wright says about this. He says, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting and preaching and singing and sewing and praying and teaching and building hospitals and digging wells and campaigning for justice and writing poems and caring for the needy and loving your neighbors as yourself. All of that will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making this present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it all behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call the building for God's kingdom. See, the average secular Bay Area person will say, well, when you die, you rot, that we're just grown-up human germs, basically, right? And that we've evolved, and when you die, there's no eternity, there's no resurrection. And so the origin of human being is nothingness, insignificance, chance. And the destiny of human being is insignificance. It's nothing. You dust, you rot. Right? Right? Now, what's funny is uh, they'll say that, but then at the same time, they'll say, but we have to treat people as though they're valuable. We have to believe in human rights. We have to care for the oppressed. They they, they take this leap of faith within their worldview, right? And they'll say, but, 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 and they'll begin to make statements that don't align with the fact that they believe that actually it's all insignificant. See, Christians, we are hard nosed skeptics. I need you to know that. Hard nosed thinkers. See, if your origin is insignificant, And if your destiny is insignificant, right, then you need to have the guts to admit that the life in between is ultimately insignificant. You should at least have the guts to say that if you follow your worldview to its logical conclusion, it means nothing. See, if there is no eternity, if there is no resurrection, then as soon as you start complaining about racism... As soon as you start complaining about oppression, as soon as you start complaining about things not being fair, or how people ought to be treated, or what's right and what's wrong, as soon as you start doing that, then listen, dear friend, you can't really speak on it. Because those are just mental constructs of your mind that is imposing on a senseless and meaningless and random reality. Do you understand? Unless there is a reality beyond the grave, then there is no hope. Unless there's a reality beyond the grave, there is no hope. Right. How many of you have watched Avatar? Anybody yeah. watch the movie Avatar? One person? Yeah. I mean, okay, thank you. My goodness. <laughs> We're going to change this message to lying. No, just kidding. <laughs> so in this movie, there's this alien world called Pandora, Right? And it's, and in this world, the, the, the air is toxic, and so humans can't really live among the native people that are there, called the Navi. And so what scientists did was they created a way for humans to go into these, they look like tanning beds, right? And you then get connected to this avatar, which is what you see the character's name, Sully. Uh, this is his avatar, And this way they can be in this world and they can interact with the people of this world and so on and so forth. Now, what's interesting is that uh, in uh, this movie, uh, the main character is actually an ex-marine who got injured and he can no longer walk. But he's loving this program because in this program he can connect to this avatar and in the movie you see that all of a sudden he's able to, through his avatar, feel the sensation of what it is to put your toes in the grass again, what it is to run again, what it is to feel water in your feet again. And he becomes, uh, he becomes obsessed with this reality so much so that uh, he goes and he, and he wants to just live in his avatar. He ends up falling in love with one of the women from Pandora. And at the end of it, miracle of miracles, what he ends up finding out is that through a weird and miraculous way, he was actually able... To be transferred in to this avatar. That what he was experiencing one day became his actual reality. But what's fascinating is to see before that happened how his hope changed. See, before he even got into the program to be able to plug into his avatar, he was downcast. He was depressed. He had no hope. But then the fact that there is this reality all of a sudden fed hope into his system. It's interesting. The first reason they were downcast was because they were looking at life without a resurrection. And anybody who looks at life that way will be downcast. But there's a specific reason they were downcast, which is this. They did not recognize Jesus. So there was a general reason. Then there was a specific reason. They did not recognize Jesus. That is, Jesus was right there with them and they didn't recognize him. Now, why is that, right? How is it that Jesus could be right there with them and they don't recognize him? And in some ways, it means that Jesus was somehow different, right? He was changed. After all, Mary didn't recognize him. The apostles didn't recognize him in John 21 when they were fishing on the boat. So there was something different about him. But if you look carefully, Luke actually says this in verse 16, but they were kept from recognizing him. Do you see that? This indicates some kind of spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Which have two indications, right? Because why is it they could not recognize Jesus? Well, one spiritual blindness is practical and the other is theological. See, many of us... In this room, maybe you don't recognize him either. In the life that you're experiencing, maybe you too are asking, where is God? Look at the mess. And just like them, Jesus is right side along, walking with them. And they're saying, my life makes no sense. All the promises of God have come void. And they are walking around downcast. And maybe for someone in this room, you are too. But Jesus is right there. You just don't recognize him. My guess is that there is someone in this room in this very condition. Right? Why couldn't they see him? Why can't we see him? Well, first of all, Jesus was extraordinarily ordinary. Extraordinarily ordinary. One of the things that has to be a matter of reflection if you're going to read this story about the risen Christ is this, is that, is that it is so different, right? When Lazarus was raised or when Jarius' daughter was raised, all of those uh, other scenarios were essentially resuscitations, They were miraculous, but they were resuscitations because they were all going to die again, right? Right? Right. But with Jesus, Jesus rose, and when he rose, he was a new creation. He was in a new body, never to die, never to die. See, and if you were going to make that up, you wouldn't have made him look so ordinary, right? You wouldn't have done that. Like, if you were to go and, if you were to walk into Barnes and Noble's, you'll see all these incredible books, right? On how, you know, we've reconstructed Jesus and how we've gotten behind what the gospel writers said. And, And usually what they'll say is this, you know, out of all the ancient writings, so like, let's take certain books that, aren't considered uh, to be inspired, right? So like, let's say the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Thomas, for instance. If you read those things, what's interesting is, is that they're interesting reads, but, but, but they can tell very quickly that, that, it's, that this is just made up. It doesn't correspond to what they know and what, and what eyewitnesses have been able to say and see about Jesus, they make Jesus out to be this sort of wizard, if you will, or X-Man. But Jesus was ordinary. And, the, ordi- and, and, and the, 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 the fact that Jesus was ordinary just blew their minds. Right? You have to pause and think about that for just a moment. Because if he is so ordinary then that actually does something within our hearts. It it, it causes us to have a problem because what we want is we want the super non-ordinary, super spiritual, you know, Jesus. That's who we want. We want a Jesus that's going to crash through this ceiling and appear to all of us, right? That's what we want. Not ordinary Jesus. But it was ordinary Jesus... I was walking alongside them. See. But the second reason they were blind was because they didn't realize how deeply they needed to be redeemed. See, notice this wonderful phrase, right? Notice it in verse 21. It says, the chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped That he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Do you see that? We had hoped. They handed him over to be crucified. We had hoped. They handed him over to be crucified. We had hoped. In other words what they're saying is this. Is that when they handed Jesus over to be crucified. Their hope was handed over with them. Their hope. Their hope. Their hope, we had hoped that things were going to be different. Have you followed Christ and realized that it didn't turn out the way that you thought it would? Have you followed Christ and and you're like, wait a minute, this isn't exactly, this isn't what I thought it would be like when I gave my life to Jesus. I, I thought things were going to be different. What do you do when you give your life to Christ and everything you thought was going to take place doesn't? The prayer you thought he was going to answer, he didn't. The job you thought you were going to get. The stability, the security that you were aiming for didn't take place. The person that, 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 you, that you were praying would be there for you left you. Do you see that? We had hoped. We had hoped that it would be different We had hoped that he was going to break our chains. That's what he's saying. We had hoped that God was going to answer our prayer. We had hoped that that, that if we prayed, that we would get the peace that corresponded with the prayer. See? But now what happened is that Jesus died. And when Jesus died, our hope died. That's what they're saying. When Jesus died, our hope died. And so now they're headed home. Now they're headed home. And they're headed home with no hope. And then hope shows up. They're headed home with no hope, and then hope shows up. Because after Jesus was crucified, he took on death. Death tapped out, and he was victorious, you see. Isn't that interesting? And here they are talking to Jesus about Jesus. (laughs) Do you notice that? They say, Well, where have you been? You, you must not be from around here because everybody around here knows what's happened. Everybody. There's enough evidence that there wasn't anybody in Jerusalem that questioned the fact. They didn't, that, that there wasn't anybody that did not know. They said, you must not be from around here. And they said, let me tell you about. They were, they were talking to Jesus about Jesus. They said let, that they crucified him, but we'd hoped he would redeem Israel. See, now, we know the crucifixion is the way he redeems. But here you have Cleopas, and he's saying, we thought he was going to redeem Israel, but instead he was crucified. You see? In other words, that is, what he was saying was, we, we were hoping that what Jesus was going to do was going to come in and take us out of Roman rule. That's what they thought, that he was going to free us from our bonds of slavery. That's what, he, that's what they thought, Right? And they thought, they presumed that the only problem they had was that they needed to be released from Rome. They assumed that the only problem they had was political slavery. That's what they presumed. Right? In other words, Cleopas thought that the only problem he had in his life were circumstances. Do you think that? Do you think that's the biggest problem you have are circumstances? He did. He thought that as long as, as, as Jesus could change his political circumstance, that as long as Jesus could change his economical circumstance, that everything would be fine. But see, Jesus actually came to redeem him and to redeem you and to redeem me from something much deeper. Much greater and much more evil. See? He thought that he only needed redemption from Roman slavery. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ came because we are all spiritual slaves deep in our hearts. All of us are slaves. You see? But 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 he didn't see that. He didn't see the spiritual bondage. He didn't think he needed any other kind of redemption other than something general. And and that somebody would come and and maybe clean things up for him. That that somebody would come and get rid of the bad guys. Get get rid of the bad stuff. Get get, get rid of all of that. Now think about it. Now if that's true, do you know what you're you're a slave to? Do you know what you need redemption to? Do you see the kind of redemption Jesus brought, the, 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 the profundity of the redemption? Do you see that? Is. And so there's a, there's a part in us where we become addicts. We become addicts to trying to get things that will make us happy, that will somehow make us feel secure, that will somehow make us feel safe, you see. My mom who was a heroin addict for almost all my life. You, we, we, as kids, we, we kind of saw how that addiction sort of took place. Right? Um, And, you know, it it starts usually with some sort of emptiness that you're trying to fulfill. You know, trying to have fun, trying to be accepted, um, trying to fill some sort of boredom or um, get rid of some sort of depression. Right? And so, and so you need this high, right? So you use the drug. And for a while that, that helps, but then all of a sudden what happens eventually is this thing they call the tolerance factor. And the tolerance factor means that after a while, the same amount that would once deliver a high no longer delivers that high, right? And, and, and so you need to have more, basically. You, you need to have a bigger high. And in order to, to, to get that bigger high, you have to do more of it, right? Right? And so with the tolerance effect, you start to take more and take more and take more. And thirdly, eventually what happens is the very thing that is sort of uh, releasing or, or, or trying to handle the stress begins to cause stress, wow. yeah. right? Originally, you know, you took it to be relieved from stress, and, but pretty soon now it causes stress, Right? and you start spiraling down, and you say, oh, yes, isn't that awful? I, I would look at my mom and be like, oh, that's awful. That, that's just awful, right? But don't you see, don't you see that we're all addicts? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The more money you get, guess what? It won't be enough. You'll want more. Yeah. The more sex you get, guess what? It won't be enough. We want more. Right, the more accolades, the more promotions, the more educated degrees, whatever it is, right? The house, the all of it, all of it. The you know the the marriage, the kids, the, the, whatever it is, all of it. It's not enough. It never will be, wow. ever. You're always going to play catch up to trying to figure out how to fill it in. And isn't it crazy? Because these are the conver- I remember when when Beck and I used to lead. Youth ministry. And we would have these conversations with youth. And and, and I guess one day we thought, you know, when we're teenagers, well, when we're adults, we'll figure it out. And we won't be chasing it anymore. Mm -hmm. But here we are, our 12-year-old selves. Still chasing it, aren't we? Oh, you are. You are. You see. We'll put it this way. Put it this way. Write this down. Anything you add to Christ or substitute for Christ as a requirement for being happy in this life you're addicted to. Wow. Anything you add to Christ or substitute for Christ, as a requirement for being happy, you're addicted to. And how you'll know that is this: I'll be happy if, blank. Wow. what you fill that in with. Wow. That's good. That's good. Jeez, you see. Most of us are on the road to Emmaus. Cleopas didn't know that they, were, that, that, that they were deeper slaves, you see? He, he didn't realize it. And, and neither do we. We want this sort of, remember, so it's chicken soup for the soul books, right? It's all we want, right? But if that's all you want, that's all you'll get. Wow. You have to be redeemed for something much deeper. Theologian Michael Horton said this, If we think the main mission of the church is to improve life and add a little moral strength to this fading evil age, We have not yet understood the radical condition for which Christ is is such a radical solution. See, most of us, the reason we come to Christ, most of us, the reason we come to Christ it, 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 is we start out just like Cle, Cleopas, right? It, is we, we want to change in circumstance, right? We want to feel happy. We want to get peace. All this, that stuff. we need to be happier, you know? So we'll come to Christ hoping that, you know, oh, well, th- this will make us happier. This will make us good. Or, 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 you know, maybe we need to be a little bit more moral or, you know, whatever it is. Or, or maybe we come to Christ because we want that monopoly get out of jail free card, right? And so we'll let, you know, we want to take that jail free, jail, Get a gel free card, and and, and we want to we want to take it to our afterlife, and we want to slam it down in front of the gates of hell, and say, ha ha, you can't touch me, right? That's what we want to do, right? Or we want to be good. We want to be a good a good mom, a good dad, a good employee. You know, uh, uh, we want to be better. We want to be kinder. We want to be nicer. Or, or we want to have a successful career, and we're hoping that if we add Jesus, you know, it, it, into you know our repertoire somehow, that, that we'll have a better career, and and so we're we'll going to say, oh please let us pass this test, or let us get that job, or whatever. Did you ever consider that maybe your career is the very thing that's strangling you? Hmm. Watch this. You always come as a sufferer wanting help, but not as a sinner needing salvation. You always come originally saying, if I just have a change in circumstances, because that's where my slavery is. No friend, it's not. It's not, you see. They were discouraged because they looked at life without a resurrection. They were discouraged because they didn't see Jesus in the ordinary. They were discouraged because they didn't think they really need a redeemer, you see. So what can we do? What can we do? We have to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to us. Wow. Reveal. Look at this, verse 30. When he, was, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. What is it about a meal that might reveal identity? If you understand table fellowship, if you understand that a meal was a place of relationship where strangers would come together, and, and, and what would happen is you, you, it was the ability to humanize somebody. That's what the table does. That's what, that's what a cup of coffee does right? That's what, that's what some steak and potatoes do. You, you see what I'm saying? That's what a bowl of spaghetti does. When, when you're sitting down and you're having a meal with somebody, you humanize them, rather than acting out of fear or judgment or assumptions. Because sharing a table causes you to become closer to them. It forces you to have a dialogue and a conversation with one another, to share stories, to be known, to be heard. And and, and for people who feel unseen, to be understood. See, when you sit down and eat with somebody, in a way you get down to the basics of what it means to be human. Because all of us need to eat. In a way, we're showing our weaknesses at the table, aren't we? The weakness that we need sustenance. That no matter who you are, no matter your political affiliation, no matter your skin color or education, no matter your tax bracket that you fall under, the reality is is that we all need to eat. We all do, you see. It's who we are. My goodness. The reason this appearance is given to us by Luke is that it is something that can happen right now. Right now. You see? Luke is trying to show us that we can meet the risen Christ. That that you that you can have the scales pulled away from your eyes. That you can have your spiritual blindness over if you're willing to find him. Well, how do you do that? Isn't that the question? How do you do it? Well, he says... Look, look at it says. Did our, not heart, did our hearts not burn within us? Didn't our hearts kindle within us as he opened the scripture? Oh. See, how you know, how you understand, how you get to know who Jesus is, one of the main ways is by reading scripture. Oh, Pastor Roger, come on. You have to have something more profound, more spiritual, more ooh, more ah than that. No. <laughs> that's it, right? But because look at this, verse 27, it says this, and it, it, it says that, that beginning with Moses, that Jesus was talking to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. See, it, 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 you can, I heard one uh, person say it this way, actually, several people say it this way, is that you can read the Bible in two ways. You can make it all about you or you can make it all about him. And when you read the Bible and make it all about him, it changes. It it changes everything about how you understand who Jesus is. You can know him. You can know him intimately, you see. And this is what these two men end up seeing. See, when you come to grips with the real Jesus, you become exactly what Charles Spurgeon said. As soon as a person has found Christ, they begin to find others. See, this is interesting because what happens is when you begin to sit down and when you begin to get this revelation for Jesus to reveal himself to you, when when you understand that hope is not lost, when when you understand that that hope is alive, when you understand that you don't have to be downcast, when you understand that, that the greatest problem is not your circumstances, then that means you're able to be anchored in the midst of your circumstances and be able to go through them. It changes everything. It changes changes it all because you're serving the God that's already seen your tomorrow. Yeah. 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 I, I remember we were going through this museum, and so we had somebody give us a tour, right? And it was great. It was great because they were, give, they were able to give us all of this knowledge, but they were all able to show us sort of where to go, right? Remember that? Or, or I remember, you know, first day of university, I get there, and a the group of us, you know, we're freshmen, we don't know what's going on. And so an upperclassman came and showed us where to go. And, and I remember that first day of university, you know, you're nervous, you don't know what to do, you know, where's your dorms, where are you going to put stuff, you know, you have no idea, you're intimidated, you know, you're the new, you're the new person there, right? And so you're like, am I going to get hazed, what's going on, right? And it was great to be able to have somebody there to kind of show you the ropes, to show you where to go and what to do, that was great because it calmed anxieties, Right? Now, the only reason that upperclassman was able to show me where to go is because he had already been there. You see? And when Jesus talks to you, he's not just talking to you about today. He's talking to you about your tomorrow. And he's already been there. He can guide you through. The storm he watched you walk in is the same storm he'll watch you walk out. He knows, and you can trust him. There is hope. There is hope. And it's when that begins to happen, when you begin to, to see a, a, and grip the real Jesus, then it makes you somebody that has to invite others. Yeah. You can't help it. You have to. Yeah. You have to. Why? Because you see that they're hopeless too and that they need hope. As soon as the person has found Christ, they begin to find others. See? See? It catapults you and invigorates you. It releases a desire for you to invite others. Last point, and we're almost through the release. Good job. You guys made it. You survived there was a release that happens, something that says I have to tell the story. And our whole theme this year has been to know the story and to tell the story. Every sermon that we've brought, every home group that we've talked about, every book that we've recommended, everything that we've done from the, from, from, uh, the, the Gospel Connects to the home group, all of it has all been done so you can be equipped to know the story. But, but what good does that do you? Well, 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 what that does is so that way you can tell the story You see, tell the story. There's a release that happens, something that says I have to tell the story. Know the story, tell the story. There's an old song that said, I heard an old, old story, how a savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood atoning, and then I repented of my sound, of, of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me into victory beneath the cleansing flood. You have a story, you see. If you're a Christian this morning, If you follow Christ, if you are a disciple of him, you have a story, you see. Verse 33 says this, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They didn't stay there. They got up and returned at once. Do you see that? They found them, verse 35, and they told what had happened, you see. They told what had happened. They didn't stay home where it was comfortable and convenient, where they don't have to face social anxieties, But when they really came to grips with who the real Jesus is, then they had to go and grab others. They had to do it. You see. And you're either one of two people this morning. You're either somebody that has hope that needs to give somebody else hope. Or you're in need of hope yourself. Because whatever you're facing, A doctor's report that doesn't look good that has counted down your days. A job that you thought would always be there. A parent that was supposed to love you and didn't. A pastor that was always supposed to be truthful to you and wasn't. Right? Situations, circumstances. All of it. Either you need hope or you have hope and you need to tell someone else. The fact that Christ has invited you to his table should cause you to want to invite others to experience the same forgiveness, freedom, love, acceptance, restoration, redemption. And if you don't know that place, you can if you don't know the place that where Jesus comes and meet with you and you experience joy and freedom, if you say, I don't know that place, but I want to know that place, it, it's there. It's available. It's yours. You just have to believe the story. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I pray, Lord God, that if there's anybody who's walking through life downcast, that their hearts will be lifted, that, that hope will be like a light at the end of the tunnel, like... A a bright star in a darkened sky. But Heavenly Father, that, that Lord God, they will see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you guys. I hope you have an amazing week. We love you. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today by faith? We are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.